Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I pray that, um, Father, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text, Father, that you would show us um, what you want us to know about the story. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to go back into time, Lord, that we would find ourselves some 2,000 years in uh, the southern region of Israel, there with um, Elizabeth and and Zacharias and, and their son, John the Baptist, Lord, that we would feel the context and, Lord, that we would rightly understand the meaning of your word. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, that you would um, open us up, Lord, just to hear your voice, that you would speak to us, that you'd meet us where we are. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the power of the the word, that it transforms lives, that it um, increases our relationship with you. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me if you would, or just follow along as I read. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened And his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke from the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us as we uh, open it up, as we study it now, Lord. Help us to understand its meaning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we ended with Mary had traveled the 80 miles down from the northern part of Israel 
uh, to the southern region. We don't know exactly where this town was located, but if you can imagine a map of Israel, the Dead Sea is the large body of water in the south. Uh, to the west of the Dead Sea is the region of Judea, and so it would be in this very dry, arid, desert land that this story took place. She walks down, probably three days' journey for her to travel down. At the end of her stay of three months, we read that she basically departed so that John the Baptist could be born. And that's where our story picks up today. At verse 57, it said, The time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. So John the Baptist is born. Uh, All of the neighbors here, they realized that something extraordinary was happening. For we learned that they were of advanced years, that Zacharias, the father, was old. The wife was advanced in years. And she was barren. And all of a sudden, she's 60, 70, 80. We don't know for sure. She was beyond the age that she should be bearing children. She gets pregnant. Her husband can't speak. They, they wonder, what is going on over here? She has the baby. And all of the neighborhood, the word had spread. It said that they, they heard that God had displayed his great mercy. And mercy is a theme that we'll see running through the course of the story. Something incredible is going on. So they come, they participate in the birth, help her out. And they're rejoicing with the Lord in this experience. This was a a tremendous thing to have. I mean, when there's a baby born, everybody's excited. But in this case, it was super duper special. I mean, this was was amazing. This was a miracle that had occurred. And then we're going to go eight days after the birth. And we read in verse 59, it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. There's a lot of cultures today that once you have a son, the son takes dad's name. In the audience, I talked about little Dan, uh, Alberto, your brother, is, you know, Alberto, Irma's firstborn son is named Alberto Jr. We call him Albert. There, there he is. He pokes his head in the door. So he's a junior. Daniel, his brother, has his first son, Daniel Jr., Joe's here. His uncle was here. I guess there's all kind of Joes in the family. They have Big Joe, Little Joe, Baby Joe. Like, I forget how many Joes they have. And I kind of went around. I said, how many of you are juniors or have juniors? So if you're a junior or have a junior, is there a bunch of you guys in here? There's a number of people. At some cultures, it's just what you do. And so here the family, it's kind of interesting. It's like the neighbors are there, friends, relatives. It's almost like they're making this decision without even talking to Elizabeth. <laughs> I love it. I love these cultures. They're like, well, we're going to name him Zachariah Jr. Zacharias Jr. Let's go for it. And Elizabeth's like, hold on a second. Um, we're actually going to name him John. She says, but his mother answered and said, no, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. So it's like, Elizabeth, is there something you're not telling us? Like you just name your son Zacharias. We already made the decision. There's nobody in your family named John. What are you thinking? They're concerned. This is, this is out of the ordinary. And she said, this is what we're going to name him. And so they look over to dad. Zacharias, and there's a lot of theories. David, I don't know if he's in here today, but he pointed out, he's like, have you ever noticed that when somebody can't talk or they don't speak your language, we just talk louder to them and we act like their ears are broken? I'm like, yeah, I do it all the time. 
I mean, you go, you, if you travel cross-culturally and you go into a, a, a country where they don't speak your language, I'm totally guilty. I'll be in China, and what happens is I go into slow, loud-speaking, broken Spanish. <laughs> because cause that's kind of, when I don't speak my language, the most comfort I'm in is Spanish. And so, I, so como se dice in English? And they're in China saying, huh? What are you talking about? So I say it louder. It, their ears are fine. It's, I don't understand what you're saying because I don't speak that language. And so maybe that's the case. It says, and they made signs to the father. We're just told that his, he can't speak. His ears could be fine. Now, some have speculated that he is an old man by his own admission. Sometimes when you get old, your ears go bad. And this would be terribly frustrating. So here he is. He can't speak. He can't hear. He's, he's obviously seems like he's kind of off to the side. And they're flagging him down. And they're like, your wife wants to name your son John. What do you have to say about this? And so he's like, give me a piece of paper or a tablet or something to write on. And his response is more forceful. She was kind of delicate. Well, actually, you know, we've decided that we're going to go with John. And he just writes down. His name is John. And they were all astonished. They recognized that something divine was happening in their midst. And at this point, suddenly he's able to speak. It says, and he began, and at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. Now, for those of you that weren't with us, I want to back up. I want us to move up to verse 13 to kind of get the story in context. So he hasn't been able to speak for nine months. But in verse 11, just to kind of kind of go back to part one so we, we get this all in context. We're told in verse 11 that an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right of the altar of incense. So in the temple, huge, we showed a picture, gigantic, I mean, multi, probably 20 football fields long. And then you get... Then you get to the, the holiest of holy area, like the actual temple area. It's probably four or five football fields big. Then there's a court for all the priests. They're all standing there. Each uh, priest section, there, was a thousands of, there were thousands of priests that were broken into groups of 780 men. And then twice a year, they would come and do one week service. And so he was there doing his from a small country town, had come into Jerusalem, was doing his duties at the temple. It was time for the evening offering. And of the 780 men, they would roll dice. They would draw lots. They would do something that a priest would get selected to go into the area right before the holiest of holies. So they would walk in, up the steps. There would be the table for the, for the incense offering. There would be showbread. There would be a couple of items in there. And then there's the huge veil and behind that veil was the actual presence of God. If a priest was selected to do this, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This was his Super Bowl. He was to simply go in there, stand right before the holiest of holies, drop a little incense on the fire, a little poof of smoke would go up, symbolizing the prayer that was going to the Lord. And as he's doing this, all of a sudden an angel appears to the right of the table. In verse 12, natural response. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. I don't know if he's thinking, man, I've been talking to my buddies about their experience. 
Never heard about the part of an angel showing up. This isn't good. God hasn't spoken to them for 400 years since Malachi 4, or, or no, the book of Malachi was the last time that God spoke to the nation of Israel. It's been silence for 400 years. Now an angel shows up and starts saying stuff. He is terrified. He's supposed to be in their quick little prayer out. Everybody's outside waiting for him. What's taking him so long? All of a sudden, the angel replies in verse 13. It says, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition, your prayer has been heard. And I believe his prayer that was heard was for the nation and for a child. But I don't think he was praying that prayer for a child at that moment. I think he prayed it for years and years and years. And God said, I'm answering now. And he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he that will go as a forerunner before him, that's Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel says, listen, your wife is going to get pregnant. He's going to have the spirit within him while he's in the womb. He's not going to drink wine. He's going to be, he's being given that he's going to be under the Nazarite vow. They were not to drink wine. They were not to cut their hair and they were not to touch dead things. Separated for God's service before he was born, before he was conceived. So when he shows up on scene, John the Baptist is going to be in dreadlocks, kind of freaky, eating crickets and honey. And telling everybody that they're in their sin and challenging people. Even Herod. And he hears this. He says, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 11, or around there, that he says that John the Baptist is the greatest of all men that was ever born. There's no man on earth that is greater than John the Baptist. This is a special kid. And Zacharias is looking at this angel. Like, I'm not in a mood for these funny jokes. Like, not having a child has been the most painful thing me and my wife have had to work through for all of these years. And now you're coming and you're saying this. This, is, this was not fair. This is not appropriate for you to be saying this stuff. Verse 18, Zacharias says to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and notice the wisdom he exercises here. And my wife is advanced in years. They both were old, but he doesn't call his wife old. He says advanced in years. He says there's no way that this is possible. Now Mary asked a question. She said, how's this, now how's this all going to happen? Because I'm not with a husband. I'm, not, I'm a virgin. There's, I know You don't just get pregnant on like, like this. Now he doubts. He said, how can this be? There's no way. Well, this same angel is going to tell Mary that with God, all things are possible. And at this moment, the angel, I think, kind of looks at his wings, maybe flutters them a little bit. says, dude, I'm an angel that stands in the presence of God. I am Gabriel. God tells me to bring this message to you and you doubt? Because of your doubt, silence. You're not going to speak until after your child is born. He goes out, probably one of the funniest games of charade that's ever been played in human history is he tries to explain to the priest, you know, my wife pregnant, you know, 
forerunner. Speaks of Malachi, it's being fulfilled. God hasn't spoken in 400 years, but now today it's being fulfilled. He can't say any of this stuff. They go down back to their hometown in the hills west of the Dead Sea. They spend time there. And then in today's story, nine months later, he speaks praises of God. And I've wondered about this praise. You know, as a pastor, Rick Restivo has told me on multiple occasions when I get sick and I lose my voice, he says a pastor that loses his voice is worthless. In jesting, you know, it's all in fun. But it's kind of, it's true because a lot of my responsibilities are about speaking. And I've noticed that in colleges and seminaries, there's no classes on listening. It's all about oratory. So how do you speak? How do you say? But there's great value in just shutting up and listening. For all of us, me. All, like, and so here's this priest that this great promise is being fulfilled and God makes him shut up. And maybe he can't even hear. We don't know. And so what's he going to do? Well, if an angel showed up to me and said, they don't have the New Testament. They have Malachi and all the other books. He's saying that Malachi 4, 6 is being implemented in my child's life. And he sees his advanced years wife growing in pregnancy. I'd be studying the Old Testament like crazy. And so he's studying, he's studying, he's studying. And so when he begins to praise God, he's going to exegete or communicate the Old Testament truths to the people, which he's going to do in his prayer. But imagine this. He hasn't spoken in nine months. His wife just had a baby. They're circumcising the son. They've named him John. Everybody knows what's going on. And he responds. His first words are praising God for how good God is. Now, if you asked me the response of the crowd, I would say that they would all be praising. They'd all be joyful. They would all be happy. But suddenly when Zacharias speaks, it says, fear came on all of those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. So the whole southern region of Israel, the word is going out. Fear is gripping the people. They understood that something miraculous had just occurred and that God's hand was now moving in, in a way that they couldn't fully comprehend. And the word fear means fear. It doesn't mean respect. It doesn't mean, it means fear that the creator and sustainer of the universe is moving in our midst and they are in absolute awe over what's happening, and the word is spreading all around. And all who heard them kept in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So they say, Oh, little John the baptizer, what's going to happen? Nothing visible is going to happen for 30 years. 30 years. That's a long time. I mean, it seems like a long time that the challenger exploded and we celebrated the, the 20, we reckon not celebrated, but we, 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 all, we remembered the 25th anniversary. I mean, I was like a little kid then. I was, I was like, I think in fourth grade when that happened. And only 25 years. And they're going to wait and they're going to keep eyeballing him. 
And he's going to kind of disappear into nothing. And then when he comes on scene, he's coming full force. He's going to come out of the desert, dusty, wearing camel cloth, dreadlocks is my imagination, you know. But he didn't cut his hair, and they didn't have whatever that Pantene hair conditioner stuff, you know. So it wasn't like it wasn't like the model guy, you know, whatever his name is, you know, Fabio. It was Matty hair, and he's eating crickets, you know, honey. And all he's doing, he's standing in the river, and people walk by, and he's telling them of their sin. So much so that Herod, when we first looked at the story, Herod was feared. He executed so many people. Horrible, horrible man. John the Baptist in the river sees Herod, starts calling him out on his sin. And the New Testament, the Gospels record that Herod was like intrigued by this guy. Wow, he's calling me out for having a relationship with this girl that I shouldn't have a relationship with? I think it was his brother's wife. It's like, man, this is interesting. He ultimately throws a party. And in this party, Herodias, the girlfriend, relationship that he was being challenged by, her daughter says, I'll perform. And he says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. She asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter, which he fulfills. This guy was bold. He, he was a freak. John the Baptist was totally set apart. And I think God uses freaks sometimes to challenge the culture and challenge people. And so there he is, calling people out, baptizing them, preparing the way of the Lord. And they're watching, just waiting. Something is going on. And they had to wait 30 years. And sometimes God will call you to do something, and there'll be years of preparation before he begins to use you. You just don't know. That's why we study. That's why we pray. That's why we say, Lord, here I am. It might be 20 years, 30 years from now. Paul didn't enter the ministry till well into his 50s, most likely. And think how he was used, but it's years of preparing and saying, Lord, here I am. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to keep growing in my walk with you. Lord, I'm going to prepare myself. So then verse 67, Zacharias is going to start to speak. He says, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying, saying, he's about to say something. I love this. Starts out when when the angel Gabriel appears on scene. He says, your son, John the Baptist, in the womb will be filled with the Spirit. Then we see when Mary appears, we're told that Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. Now we see the Father filled with the Spirit. This whole family loved the Lord and is walking with the Lord. They're filled with the Spirit. And he's going to begin to speak. And before we go into what he says, I hear it all the time. I heard it last week. Um, Somebody called. They want to talk to basically combat veterans who they're trying to make a movie. Combat veterans that went two different directions. Total atheist, total religious nut. So I was categorizing the religious nut. They'd like to interview me sort of thing. (laughs) And so I'm talking to the guy that's like the producer. And I'm saying, well, what's your intent? You know, what's where are you going? He's like, well, you know, well, God was really angry in the Old Testament. There was no love. There's no mercy in the New Testament. It's kind of, you know, that that God in the New Testament's like the hippie, the tie dyed shirt, peace symbol, like love everybody. And I'm like, man, you got it all wrong. There was plenty of mercy and love. God's just kindness reaching out to the people of all nations in the Old Testament. And as we go through this, 
this whole theme of what Zacharias said, he's going to talk about salvation from his enemies, spiritual salvation, forgiveness of sins. And all he's working with is the Old Testament. He has nine months of studying and studying and studying what is going to happen in my lifetime. For all practical purposes, this story is still in the Old Testament. And listen to what he says. He starts out with, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be God. God is good. And we need to praise him. All, all everything should start with adoration of the Lord because everything begins and ends with him. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Notice that. Accomplished is in past tense. John the Baptist is just born. Jesus is six months along. He says, God's come and it's accomplished. It was accomplished before the foundations of the world. God in Genesis 3.15 says, my son will come and crush your head. Like it was done. They were in faith looking forward, but through God's time, God is outside of time. And it was done. He says, it's accomplished. Redemption for his people. And raised the horn of salvation. This is the strength of the Messiah. For us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. He says, so you look at the whole Old Testament, the Bible. The prophets have been telling about this from day one. Over and over and over and over again. Salvation from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy towards our fathers. This is the second time we see mercy in the story. Mercy is God withholding something that we deserve. Punishment. Judgment. And he says, God has shown mercy towards fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now I want to pause at this. That God has remembered his covenant. We have to kind of back up and look at the story, the context. Most likely... Zacharias did the circumcision of a son, John. Circumcision was more than just a medical thing. This was a reminder of a covenant that God gave. You'll see up here, it says Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and then Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 12 and 15, we see the Abrahamic covenant where God promises to Abraham that he will bless all nations through him. It led up to this, him being willing to sacrifice Isaac when Abraham knew that all of the promises that God had made came through Isaac, yet he was still willing to, to make the sacrifice. He makes his great Abrahamic covenant. And then at the end of it, in chapter 17, God says, I'm going to do all of this stuff. Instead of this, this covenant was not conditional. Normally a covenant is conditional on Two parties both agreeing to it. When they would make a covenant, and the stories there in Genesis, if you read, God says, go get a cow, go get, well, maybe it was a heifer. A, cow, a, cow, a heifer is a cow, I think. A couple birds, a couple goats and lambs and stuff, you know, like just a number of animals. And then what he said is you're going to split them in two from head to tail sort of thing. And what they would do is there would be where two mountainsides came together. They would split them open, lay half on each side. And the blood would drain down to the center. And what would happen is, is the two people would walk back and forth in the blood. And the blood would get on their pant legs. And they would say, if we made a deal that I would buy Larry's car, 
Larry's always my victim because he's given me consent and he's always right here in the front row. So if Larry and I were making a deal, Larry, why don't you come on up? Let's, let's really paint the picture. To really make this out. So Larry and I made a deal. You can stand over there, face me. This is the deal. I'm going to buy Larry's car. He's going to give it to me now. Over the course of the next year, I'm going to pay him $3,000. We would split the dead animals. The blood would run forth, and we would walk back and forth, kind of looking each other in the eye. We'd do this a couple times, and we would be saying, it's not a sobriety checkpoint. I don't know. (laughs) But we're going back and forth, and what we're saying is, if I don't maintain my part of the deal that I pay you and you don't maintain your As these animals are split open, so will my blood be for you if I don't fulfill it. Wow, Larry learned something new as the example. And so then you see, in the story, you see great fear comes over Abraham because Abraham knows there is no way he can maintain this promise. So we're told that God puts him in a sleep and God walks through the blood. God walks through and says, this promise is totally conditional on me. Abraham will fail. All of Israel will fail but I will keep my word and I will maintain it. And then at the end of all of this in 17, God says, you'll circumcise your males on the eighth day as a reminder of this promise. And so here Zacharias can't speak, focusing, remembering all of this, just circumcised his son. And he's like, he's a priest. How many children did he circumcise over the course of his life? And suddenly the point of circumcision, it just came, oh, no way. The promise is being fulfilled through my boy. Now I'll read it, verse 72, to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, that covenant where the animals were split open, that he will bless all nations through Abraham. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Catch that. Everybody's reacting in fear. And suddenly now, he says, in Christ, in faith in the Messiah, there's no fears, Romans says. There's no longer any condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. We've been set free. We're redeemed. Our debt has been paid. We can serve him. Verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So in holiness, set apart, walking in purity before the Lord. And in righteousness. See, the righteousness isn't based on our own works. We're getting to the point in Isaiah on Wednesday nights in Isaiah 64, where it says that our good deeds are but filthy rags. And that's a, that's a menstrual cycle rag. Is, is, sorry to be so gross, but that's what the text says. It says that the very best that we have to offer before God is a dirty menstrual, menstrual rag. So he doesn't think that his righteousness is coming from his own works. He knows his righteousness has been credited to him through God. Turn with me a couple books um, to the right to Romans chapter 5. Paul is writing out a legal defense through Romans. First to condemn everybody and then to show them how they can have peace with God. And as you get into Romans chapter 5, we're going to ease into it. So Romans 5 verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, justified that you are right before, that you're just before God. Through faith is how you're justified. We have peace with God 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that before you have Christ in you, you're an enemy of God. And in Christ you have peace with God and of God. He goes on to say, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. See, I love this. Grace is actually like, it's almost like a, a, a noun. You stand in it. We're saved by it, but then we live in it. We operate in the realm of grace. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now skim on down to verse 12. It says, therefore, just as though through one man sin entered in, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. So he says that because Adam ate the fruit, yes, Eve ate the fruit first, but God gave man the responsibility. God didn't talk to Eve. It was Adam's responsibility to share with his wife. And he ate. He condemned us. Through his DNA, we've all been changed. We've sinned on our own. We have sin in our DNA. We are absolutely separated from God through sin. Skim on down to verse um, 18. And it says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as though one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so the disobedience of one, the many will be made, note that, righteous. It was, a few, it was maybe the end of last year. I do almost all my banking online. So I kind of just, you know, I log in. I reconcile my account almost on a daily basis because I just, I like numbers. Like, it's just how I'm wired. And I noticed somebody had treated themselves to an airfare in Europe on my account. You know, I got back and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, did I, you know, did I? Pay $2,000. You know, stuff like this happens, and I start thinking, well, maybe I did it and I just forgot. Like, maybe I just happened to buy, like, an airline ticket from Ireland to, and it's just not coming to me. I hear, I hear that, you know, senior moments just come on you really fast, and maybe it's happening. So then I call in. I'm like, you know, I'm pretty sure I was driving from here up to Northern California, so I'm almost I'm positive I didn't buy an airline ticket. They're like, okay, we'll take care of it. So they credit my account, the balance, I had to sign a little thing stating that I'm telling the truth. And I noticed then about two months later, they'd credited my account again. Orbitz had refunded my account. It's like, awesome, $2,100 into my account. And so I call up my bank and I say, you guys probably want to know about this, but you guys refunded the amount and then Orbitz refunded the amount. But if it's going to be like an administrative nightmare for you guys, just go ahead and leave it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's no. and, and they didn't like my joking. They were like, no, 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 we need to take care of it. And then they're like, we need, we need to transfer you to fraud person or whatever. So I did the same thing. I said, like, you know, it's probably so much a hassle. Just, it's not going to bother me at one bit if you, they wouldn't do it. But, but basically, I was imputed into my account was this debt I didn't deserve it, and they took it back. Christ on the cross imputed into our righteousness account total and complete righteousness. It's not our own doing, and he's not taking it back. What he did on the cross, he paid our debt in full completeness. And we have access to it through faith, believing. Believe, and that's it. 
not doing so many good deeds that then you, then you have access. It's like, no faith that he died for me. Boom, your account. So he sees our life free of sin. He sees the life of Christ in us. And it wasn't any different for the Old Testament saints. See, back to Luke. He says that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him. Jesus isn't even born yet. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. Jesus still would live perfectly under the law and then die. And he's saying before all of this, it's done. In God's eyes, it was done. They had faith looking forward. We have faith looking backwards. And then at this point in his talk, I imagine he's talking to them, so happy to speak after all these months. And I picture him walking over to his son, John the baptizer, placing his hands on him and saying the last part. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. He's still in the Old Testament, and catch that. Notice that. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he holds his son. He understands this. He understands his calling. And we don't baptize children, but we dedicate children. And I think as parents, there's a great lesson. Zacharias had no idea what was going to come through his son. He didn't realize that Herod was going to cut his head off, put it on a platter and serve it at 30 years old. Maybe a couple, a little bit after 30. He didn't know this, but when his child was born, he said, Lord, he's yours. When all my girls were born, we held them, we prayed for them. Every night, Lord, they're yours. Lord, help them to come to know you at an early age. Help them to live for you. May your hand be upon them. We as parents need to be praying for our kids. We don't know what will come. I've often joked that it's like, oh, even if, like with my background being real honest, even if, Lord, you called my girls to go be missionaries in the Middle East, the place of my like last, like I was there as a Navy SEAL. But God loves everybody in the Middle East and wants them to come to Christ. So to me, it's like, Lord, even if that, it's yours. They're yours. Check out what he says. He says, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord. And there he sat eating his crickets, drinking his honey with his dreadlocks in the river, calling people out for their sin. Repent of your sin. Be baptized. Prepare yourselves for the the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is here. He's here. And he was preparing the hearts of the people of Israel to receive their Messiah. To give his people the knowledge of salvation. I love this. You can know you have salvation. You can know that you have peace with God. Satan likes to affect our brains. I don't think he can get inside of us. But I, have, I just think that he uses our past, 
our mistakes. You take the most vilest sin you've ever done. You'd be a Christian for years and laying in bed and yes, you're not worthy. You can't be used by God because of this. You fill in your blank. We all have them. And you know what the response is? You're absolutely right. You're totally right. I'm to- my, my righteousness is but filthy rags, but the thing is Jesus died for me and his righteousness has been uh, imputed to my account. I'm walking around with a loaded bank account of righteousness and it's because of what he did, not because of what I did. I can't do anything and he's chosen to use me and it's his great mercy and I can't explain it, but that's why he's good. And just so you know, I love John the Apostle. You know, because I like guys that tell you why they write certain things. So in the Gospel of John, you get to the very end. And in chapter 20, he says, I write these things that you might come, this is Gunner's translation, that you might come to saving knowledge of Christ. You could write all kinds of things. There are not enough books in the world to write about Jesus. But I wrote these things that you would come to have faith in Christ and be saved. And at the end of 1 John, John, so if you want to go to the back of the Bible to 1 John, Hold your place in Luke, because we're going to go back. But in 1 John, in the fifth chapter, he goes to explain why did he write this whole book with five chapters in it, this epistle. And he says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's talking to Christians. He's talking to those that, as Romans 1.13 tells us, that when you heard the gospel and you believed, at that moment you're sealed in the Spirit. Permanently He says, for those who believe in the name of the Son of God, who believe in Jesus, so that you may know. You can know cognitively. We can know something that you have eternal life. If you could lose it, how eternal would it be? Not very eternal in my mind. Eternal means, like when you believe, eternity. You can't do anything to earn your salvation And your salvation is totally bound in the work of Christ. Can't undo what he did on the cross. We abide in him. We walk with him. And John the apostle, who is like Jesus' kid brother, he wants to tell us at the end of his life that you can know you have eternal life. Trust in him. Walk with him. Abide in him. Chapter 2 at the end of it, it says, abide in him so that when he appears, you don't have to shrink away in shame. This picture of when Jesus comes back, if you've abided in him, There's no shame. You just look up. Abba, Father, take me home. Here I am. It's awesome. Back to John, or Luke here. So he's going to go before the way of the Lord to give his people the knowledge of salvation. God wants us to know about salvation by forgiveness of their sins. Your sins have been forgiven in Christ because of the tender mercy of God. See, it's not, oh, go clean your life up. Stop doing that. Stop doing this. Stop being a sinner, and then God will reward you with eternal life. You can't do it. We're all sinners. If you're trying on your own strength to do good, to earn salvation, all it will do is frustrate you. But we're told here, all of this stuff happens because of the tender mercy of God. Go with me to Romans chapter 2.
if you've come to believe in Jesus as your Savior, this is how it happened. If you haven't believed in Jesus, this is what God's doing to you right now. He's working you over. He's sending people into your life. And in Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, in the midst of his case, the first three chapters are, are showing that all people have sinned. It ends the big crescendos in 323 that says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But before he gets there, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Think about that as you go back to Luke. It's God's kindness, his gentleness, his love for us that leads us to repent, to turn to him, to walk with him. And Zacharias is speaking totally from the Old Testament. God's a loving God. He loves you. He created you. We're told in Peter that the only reason Jesus hasn't come back is because he desires all people to be saved. Which then Zacharias to his son, he says, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And when when John the Baptist was proclaiming He said, it's not me, I'm not the Messiah. I'm merely a reflection of the light that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. All our hope is in him. And I would suggest that we're all little John the Baptist or we're supposed to be as Christians. See, John the Baptist was a forerunner. He went ahead of Christ and he's pointing backwards. That's Jesus. That's six months, my cousin behind me. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. But for us, we're going to do communion today. And we'll look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're told that we do this, that we're to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. And so we are coming after Jesus. He's the gospel. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose on the third day. And God has chosen the church, us, believers in Christ, to be a light for him. That as John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, that's what we're to do. And then verse 80, just kind of gives a little summary of John's life. For the next 30 years, we're not going to hear anything about him. We're like, silence for 30 years. We're told that the child continued to grow and to become strong in the spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance in Israel. We don't know a lot about these silent years in John's life. It's been suggested, I kind of agree with it, that because of the age of his parents, John the Baptist's parents most likely died early in his life. Some believe that John would have been taken in by the Essenes, the sect of Judaism, in the southern region of, of Israel, uh, west, of the dead, uh, west of the Dead Sea. Makes total sense to me. These people were zealous religious nuts committed to the word, And they wanted the truth to be known. We best know the Essenes for one thing. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls. They'd gone down there. They'd recorded the copies of scriptures, put them in the It makes sense that that John would fit right at home for when he came out challenging the people for their sins and turned to the Lord, turned to the Lord, turned to the Lord. So as we transition to communion today, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, we're fast-forwarding in our story of why do we take communion? What's the point? The Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians, verse 23, For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together... To eat, wait for one another. So here in communion, we're told. In a few minutes, we're going to pass out the elements. Little broken cracker. Little, tiny little plastic cup of grape juice. And we do this because on the night of the Lord's Supper, Jesus' earthly ministry was coming to a close. His apostles didn't quite understand. They were coming down to Jerusalem for the Passover. Remember the Passover from Exodus. All the plagues were hitting Pharaoh. The last one was the Passover. And he said, basically, the firstborn of the firstborn male of everything, like animals, like everything. The angel of the Lord's going to come over and pass over and take out the first one. Unless make a sacrifice with an animal, put the blood on your door, then you'll he'll pass over you and your children will be spared. So they're coming to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus, at the Passover meal, just takes the loaf of bread, breaks it, says, this is my body which has been broken for you. Uh Uh-huh. I don't think they understood at this point. I think after everything, after the resurrection, is I think when the light bulb kind of came on for them, Jesus knew that the next day, within 24 hours, before the sun would set the next day, he would be in a tomb. And he said, "This this is a symbol this is a memorial so that from here to the rest of your life, every time you break bread, you'll think of my, my broken body. And this wine, this, this one big glass of wine that they probably each had, you know, to have a sip of, said, this is my blood. This is a symbol of the new covenant that there's life in me. And as often as you do this, we're told, verse 26, we're to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we take communion kind of once a month. Sometimes we do it, you know, maso menos, depending on how I'm feeling or what the text says. But I think, man, you guys go out for like pizza and you tear some of that bread off? Man, broken body. Have a little of your soda, broken body. The new covenant. It was a practical symbol to remind us, listen, any victory I have in my life is not by my own. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And as often as we do this, We're to proclaim the Lord's death because he's coming again. And he's not coming the same way. He's coming with an iron fist to reign and to rule. 
And when he comes, there'll be no need for communion because for us who believe in Christ, we'll be with him forever. But when we do this, we're reminded there, hell is real and people need Jesus. And God used a crazy idea to use people like us to be the, the, his voice piece, to share the good news. And if we're going to do that, if you're going to start talking about Jesus to people out in the world, you better start equipping yourselves. You better start equipping yourselves because people are going to ask you hard questions. You need the answers from the word. You need to be on your knees and praying. We need his help. He's the one that's going to work through us. And then he says that this whole context was given in Corinth. This is, the, the, uh, some have suggested that the Corinth church was like Jerry Springer gone wild. Like it was horrific stuff was happening here. And, and he's saying here that people are taking communion and they're dying. They're not taking naps. They're dying because they're taking it. And so as we take communion, the guys are going to come up. We're going to sing a song or a song's going to be sung, I should say. And during this time, as the elements are going out, we want to examine our hearts, say, Lord, what areas in my life have I not surrendered to you? Is there sin in my life that I need to confess? And if you're not in Christ, what you need is you need, Christ, you need communion is for believers. And if you want to get right with God, you believe. And once you believe, you're sealed in the spirit, you're a child of God. And then for believers, sin in our life, what it does is it breaks the relationship we have with God. Not that we lose our salvation, but we, our fellowship, our relationship gets severed, broken. And in 1 John 1, 9, I've misquoted it so many times that I am not comfortable just quoting it. So I read it. <laughs> and it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this picture of Zacharias, I love. He blew it. He blew it in the temple. If I was God, I would say, hit the curb. I'll wait till the morning sacrifice or the next afternoon sacrifice. I'll just keep going until I find a priest that responds in faith. Not God, not his tender mercy. When we err, what God says, I'm going to restore you, there might be consequence. I'm going to work with you that you become more like Christ. He had his nine months of no talking, but still he used him. The whole aim of his discipline was restoration. And we as Christians, as a church, as parents, we have an obligation to help each other along in our walk. But our aim is always restoration, helping people restore the fellowship. The first thing that you need to do is to confess your sin to the Lord. And we're told that when we confess, he restores us. And if your mind during this time as we're passing out the elements, if you draw a blank over anything that you could confess, confess your pride because that's pride. <laughs> we all struggle with stuff. We all need to let go. So let's pray. The guys will come out and we'll... Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this story of, of Zacharias and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And Father, we thank you that you move in miraculous ways. Father, I thank you that as you revealed yourself to Zacharias and he failed, that he sinned by not responding in faith. Father, we thank you that we get a glimpse of who you are. 
there's tender mercy in you, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, that it's your kindness that moves in our life to help us to become children that you want us to be. And so, Father, like Zacharias, I pray that, Lord, that you would show us areas in our life, Lord, sin in our life that is separating us from you, Lord, that where we've broken the fellowship, Lord. Father, we want to experience you fully. And we need you to show us areas, Lord, in our life that we need work on. Father, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves before you, that we would surrender, that we would yield, that we would confess, Lord, that you would help us break the chains of constant sin that we just can't get over. For there's power in Christ. Father, you break these chains, and Lord, we, we just give it to you, Lord. We thank you that Jesus paid it all on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that his work on the cross was complete, that he was the perfect substitute for us. We thank you that in his resurrection, Lord, this, this grape juice, Lord, that there's newness of life, that there's covenant, that we no longer fear death. Father, we long to abide with you, and we come before you, and we just ask for help. Father, we pray that you would bring to mind friends, family, co-workers, people who don't know you. Lord, maybe there's people here that haven't come to trust in you. Father, we pray that you would help them along their way of coming to faith in Christ. Lord, that they would know that they have eternal life in him. Father, use us. We're your vessels. Father, we're thankful that you're so kind to us, that you use us in our imperfection. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.